This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Beautiful. So on Tuesday night at home, three of us, the other two shall remain nameless. We started discussing last Sunday night's message. The only problem was the other two people who shall remain nameless did not remember what I preached on. Did not remember the points. Uh, Meryl remembered, if her name was Meryl, something about a philosopher. Didn't you say something about a philosopher, Nietzsche or Kierkegaard or something I said about someone? And T, your contribution was equally negligible. Yeah, you can't even remember now what you remembered then. So, but listen, we live with that. You know, at the end of the day, we put hours and hours and hours of study in only for people to remember that it was a bad message or that it wasn't that noteworthy. But if God can take a seed of a moment or an idea and impregnate our soul with some of the substance to bring about transformation, it's worthwhile. So tonight what we decided to do is uh, before we dive into this, I've asked Stu to take 10 minutes and uh, to remind us of what this book's about. So, Stuart, you're up, buddy. Where did I put the microphone now? Oh, here we go. Technology. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> I'm not guaranteeing that what I'm going to tell you is going to help you to retain any information that Chris dispenses after me, but <laughs> I am hoping that it sets more of a scene of one on. Uh, the reason that I'm doing this was a discussion that we were having as the eldership uh, where we were discussing how as our community group, table community, goes through this book, it was really helpful to dig into some of the study notes and just understand some of the context and some of the background as to what he's saying and how to interpret it in our modern context. Because obviously those are different. You know, this is thousands of years ago. But there are parallels that are really, really similar to where we're at. And there are contexts that are really helpful to understand. So let me set a timer. I'm notoriously good at going long. Uh, Chris texted me two or three times just asking me, just remember, just 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. I was like, yeah, I got it. He's like, no, I don't think you, I don't think you have got it. <laughs> okay, here we go. So what did you say, 15 minutes? Yeah, let's go. Okay, 10 minutes is going. Uh, so the author of the book is John. It is believed that this is the same John, the disciple, the one who is spoken of as being loved by Jesus. The same John who is the son of Zebedee, a Galilean fisherman. The same John who is the brother of James and is one of the earliest men called by Jesus out of the fishing trade into the come and be a spiritual revolutionary trade. 
um, they were called the Sons of Thunder, and they had a reputation for being fiery men. I would imagine these were salty men, these were strong men, these were tough men. He was born in 11 AD in Bethsaida, and he died in 98, 99, or just after in Ephesus. He was the only of the disciples not to, that we know of, be martyred in a horrific way. Apparently he died of old age. Fun fact, Tertullian, a Christian writer in the uh, late second and early third century wrote that before the Romans banished John, because at one point he's banished to the Isle of Patmos in a kind of form of punishment, they brought him into a Colosseum and dunked him into a vat of boiling oil. When he emerged completely unharmed, the entire Colosseum converted to Christianity. So they did try to martyr him, but he was just beyond that. So they couldn't get him. So then he died of old age after the hot oil experience. Which I'm sure that was interesting. He is believed to be the author of the three letters of John, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and possibly revelations. John walked and talked with Jesus. He didn't hear about him later on. He wasn't taught about him from someone else. He was first generation, boots on the ground, in the trenches, with Jesus. Think about that for a second. And we're getting this guy's words. This guy saw Jesus heal. He heard him teach, physically, literally, in earshot. He watched him die within feet. Jesus asked him, take care of my mother when he died. He met Jesus arisen on the other side of death, and he saw him ascend. It's quite the uh, resume for writing scripture. The purpose of 1 John, the letter is written to dispel doubt, to build assurance, and to correct false teaching. There was a significant problem confronting the church at that time, and that was in the form of declining commitment. Many believers were starting to conform to the world's standards. They were a generation or two into their faith, and they were starting to slip and backslide, and they were failing to follow Christ wholeheartedly, and they were starting to compromise their faith. And false teachers were popping up in the plenty and they were accelerating the church's downward slide away from Christian faith. And John addresses two major false teachings. The first was a group of people who denied the reality of sin altogether. It just doesn't exist. It's not real. You don't have to worry about it. That manifested in a couple of different ways. But basically, they believed that the physical body evil or worthless, and that we can have fellowship with God whilst we deliberately practice sin. And John calls this living in spiritual darkness. John is saying explicitly, you cannot call yourself a Christian and still live an intentionally evil and immoral life. You cannot love God and court with sin at the same time. The lie that was permeating the truth ignores a basic, the lie that was permeating ignores a basic truth, that we are all sinners by nature and by practice. At conversion, scripture tells us that all of our sins are forgiven 
And as we studied through this book, this part really hit me. Past, present, future. Every sin that I don't even know that I'm going to commit ahead of me, which was the part that started to blow my mind, is done, is covered. Yet after we become Christians, we still sin. We have this dichotomy, and we need to confess it, John says. Herein is one of the paradoxes of Christianity, where you're called to come and be with Jesus and let him speak into your life and walk in the light, but that light exposes your failure. The beauty and the paradox is that every time you're able to acknowledge a failure, you're able to receive the grace of God and his healing and his forgiveness over and over and over. Pick up your cross again and again and again. Receive again. And the confession that John calls us to is not the confession where we need to gain God's acceptance. Are we in? Are we out? Are we in? Are we out? It's the confession that removes the barrier to fellowship that sin puts between us and him. The second major lie that he is coming up against and he's preaching against with clarity in his message is that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was not God in flesh. People were teaching that. That's not how you get, gain access to the Lord. That's not how you gain access to his kingdom. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. John says really, really clearly, anyone denying the Christ is a liar. Anyone denying the Father and the Son, the union, that he was the God-man, not just a good man, the God-man, is a liar, is a false teacher. You are to beware of those teachings and stay away from them. And it struck me, how many anti-Christs are there in our lives, in our culture, in the media, in what we're consuming? Little ways. He wasn't really Jesus. Your body's not really worth anything. Just do whatever you want. Flavor your life with Jesus and enjoy everything else you want on the side. Anti-Christ, against Christ. In the final years of his life, this once fiery son of thunder, he writes firmly and with clarion challenge, but he also writes as an affectionate father, wanting to guide his, in his words, dear children away from harm and away from lies and into simple, clear, assured, biblical God life. The letter, actually it's not a letter, it's a poetic sermon, sorry. Fun fact. Was written in Ephesus, which was once a part of ancient Greece. Now you'll find that in coastal Turkey. Jerusalem had been destroyed about 20 years earlier and Christians were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he's writing to a group of Christians that he knows are struggling with these false teachers and with the slipping faith. The date of the letter, likely 85 to 90 AD, about 10 years before he passes. The structural overview of the letter. It's written, as I said a few minutes ago, as a poetic sermon more than a letter, and his words flow in and through these very strong contrasting ideas, light and dark, old and new, loving the Father versus loving the world, truth versus lie, love versus hatred, I like the simplicity of it, the clarity of it. 
he offers several of these examples. You can know that you are by Are you this or this? He makes it very clear, very clear. He presents God throughout the book in three dynamic symbols, light, love, and life. Light symbolizing absolute purity, God's holiness. And he talks about our ability to walk in that light, to make active decisions like confession and being in community. Giving, Jesus dying for us, forgiving us, blessing us. And as a part of love, he speaks about Christ calling us to love others as Christ loved us. And as this is the evidence of your salvation. If you want to know whether you are a Christian, there's a really, really easy, quick litmus test. Are you loving others? Are you serving others? Are you giving up sacrificially your time, your money, your energy, your resources to meet the needs of others? He says, if you're not, you don't know Jesus. Pretty hard hitting. And lastly, life. Because his word is true, we can have full assurance of eternal life and victory over sin. By faith, we can be certain of our eternal destiny with him. And I close with this key verse from 1 John 5, 13. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then how do we live from that place? And Chris is going to open up that for us. Great. Well done, Stu. Thank you. I was uh, mulling over that this... Hannah, would you sit down, please? I was mulling over the, the, the story around John, and uh, didn't it strike you that here was the son of a fisherman, one would assume, under the, the, the times of antiquity where the father apprenticed the son to do what he did. And so here was a fisherman called to be part of this great to quote Stu, who quoted someone else, spiritual revolution. I can imagine that John felt decidedly out of place. You feel out of place at the church? The, the, this is a book of great poetry, it's, it's, uh, or prose. It is, it's an exquisitely written book. And 13 times in five chapters, John refers to the word father. Now, I know some of you, that's a horrible word. It has no positive connotations, and for that, I apologize. But I think he's trying to do something here to help this community who are going to run with the race that he now is ending. And he helps them understand a number of things which we will unpack over this period of time. But what struck me today, so I'm going to ask for your patience with me. I was mulling over the idea of John feeling out of place. He didn't fit in. He's a fisherman, and now he's being asked to lead a spiritual revolution. And I thought of my own life, so I'm begging you, grace part two. Because I think many of us would look back on our lives and think of how often we just didn't fit in. And I think a byproduct, a byline of this narrative is John calling us to fit in even when we feel we don't fit in. 
I was born in Afrikaner in South Africa, very difficult to translate. Probably the closest I get, without offense intended, was a redneck or a hick. So at the age of about 12 or 13, my parents moved into a very English suburb, a more affluent suburb, where the kids dressed nicer. They had the coolest sneakers back in the 70s, the Levi's, the cool t-shirts with the surf logos on. They were allowed to go down to the beach, none of which I was allowed to do. They used to, and this is just telling it as it is, people in my class, it was a boys only school of about a thousand boys. And um, I remember sitting one day at 14, watching one of the guys draw a cartoon figure of me because I didn't look like them, I didn't sound like them, I didn't dress like them. My accent was very guttural because English was my second language. And I remember being mercilessly teased because I didn't fit in. So I made two decisions. I'm going to cuss louder than anyone else. And I'm going to be in the top sport team, whatever I did, whether I ran for the school, played rugby for the school or cricket, and I did. But it was my meager, broken attempt to fit in. Then I come to faith, and I'll just highlight a few pieces of the story. And once again, as I had just started fitting in, as I had just been accepted into this English-speaking community, I get saved into the Jesus People Movement. Think Calvary Chapel, South Africa, all those years ago. But this time, I was the suburban kid at an inner-city church. And it was a, 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 a church completely unlike anything I was used to. I was in the top class academically. Most of them didn't finish high school, or many of them, certainly in the early days. They'd been incarcerated. They'd been drug addicts. They had sold drugs. They'd been prostitutes. They had, you name it, they had been those things. And once again, I found myself feeling completely out of the kind of inner sanctum of what made that church what it was. And yet God did not let me off the hook. I can tell story after story of wanting to get out of that into a more familiar environment where I could be accepted, but the Spirit of God wouldn't let me. And I wonder if John didn't feel that way. I'm the son of a fisherman. I'm a fisherman. I'm a son of thunder. I'm loud. I'm brash. I'm opinionated. I don't fit into this church thing that sometimes seeks to domesticate us. Make us nice little people. And then we planted our first church. And we were part of the emergence of a global church planting movement. And once again, we didn't fit in. Most of the others were older. They were educated. They'd been to college. I hadn't read the Bible through when we planted our first church. We were young. Meryl was 21. I was 24. They were all older. But once again, God would not let me off the hook. God would not allow me to leave. And there were opportunities to leave. But just like John had to stick with a mandate God gave him, I had to stick feeling like a square peg in a round hole. Guys and girls, truth be told, I don't feel really that comfortable in the thing called the church in a traditional sense. I'm too opinionated. I'm not easily swallowed up by religious things and religious sayings and religious doings. There are times I want to cuss, and sometimes I do, because I'm that freaked out internally. 
And then God's surprise of surprises moved us here to replant a church in Walnut about 40 minutes from here, California. We lived in Diamond Bar. I'd left a church, Merrill and I had of about a thousand young people. This is what it looked like in 1996. I was 38, Merrill was 34. What did God do to me that time? He sent me to a church full of people who were in their 50s. The age range jumped by 20 years. Most of the people were not educated. We left behind a church full of educated people, young. It was, they were called yuppies in those days. Um, you know, many in the surfing industry, billabong, gotcha, uh, designers, uh, opera singers. And I come into a church full of electricians, plumbers, contractors, mechanics. And once again, I cried out to God, God, you have made a mistake. I don't fit in here. Why did you send us here? I don't want to live in America. I wanted to plant a church in Hong Kong. And now I'm in a church full of people who are 20 years older than me with no interests in the things that I had interest in. I tried to speak about football, but I knew nothing about football. I remember one, I think our second year we were here, the Super Bowl was on and I was sitting by myself because we didn't have friends. And Meryl, feeling really sorry for me, came and sat next to me and it was John Elway's year that he won one of his rings. And Meryl thought she was really kind and she kept saying, where's the ball? And I said, babe, thank you for sitting with me, but you, you leave now. <laughs> and then she thought, well, let me, she, then she says, well, who's he married to? How many kids does he have? I said, who the freak cares? You know what I mean? I don't care. I just want to watch the dang game. Leave me alone. And so a little bit like Sting's Englishman in New York, and I played that quite often in those days, I like my toast done on one side. I'm an Englishman in New York. I'm a South African in L.A. I did not fit in. And so I can go on. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you're the odd one out? Everyone else, all the disciples scatter and Jesus says, John, will you look after my mother? All the other disciples die. John, if I choose for you to live, you will die of old age. But, but I'm a fisherman. I'm a son of thunder. I'm a wild, crazy guy. Always getting into trouble. My mother goes to bat for me. She does her first helicopter thing. Will you put my boys next to you in heaven? Now, I say all of that because of my love for you. Because I know what it feels like. If I had time, I could tell you many more stories where I felt a square peg in a round hole even in the three churches I've led. But there's an incredible verse in Isaiah 41, please, Troy. There we go. It says this, I will make rivers flow in barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and parched ground into springs. I will put on the desert, I will put in the desert, the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that people, so that people, so that people may see and know, people may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created this. 
botanists tell me that those trees should not coexist in a singular ecosystem. They're not naturally fitted to grow together. And the sublime nature of this verse, which to me is the exhortation that I have to you and John as a father has in this book, is let God plant you in the desert alongside other trees that are also not like you. Christianity is not a guarantee of happiness, nor the sense that I always belong, but that people may see and know that the hand of the Lord has done this. That's the beauty of this. And either side of our text tonight that um, was read is the word fellowship. And the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia or koinonia. My Greek friend always laughs at me when I pronounce it very poorly. And it's a very deep, sublime word. At first reading, it's, it's friendship and relationship and, and common partnership. It's often used back in antiquity to describe a business partnership or marriage. In fact, another author said, it comes from the root word that means partner or companion. It is in it, the idea of sharing, sharing possessions, sharing experiences, sharing life, sharing one's self with others. Now, guys and girls, I want to ask you tonight not to bow to the temptation of not fitting in. I met Sage tonight, her second visit. I think Sage is sitting over there. I can imagine walking into a room like this by herself, full of strangers, and I've seen people turn around and walk away. I've seen people leave because they say the church has too many beautiful people in it. But fellowship is a sublime word. It's actually a glorious word. It isn't to describe a hall where we meet or coffee and donuts after we gather. It is a word of deep friendship, the friendship that lasts. You've met Terry, most of you, who I met in 1981 when I came out of the army on a weekend off. Met his wife in 1977. And we've walked together for all these years, 40-some years. Or Nick and Cutty, whom you've met. And I was in the army with him. He was the financial officer, and I was the intelligence officer. And we became friends, and I married both of those men and their wives to each other. We love babies. Kasim, you're doing a great job there, buddy. Just It's all in the hips. Think of it like a golfer. You know the golfer, it's in the hips. Just think hips, buddy, and, and you got it going right there. See, fellowship is about a partnership of sharing possessions, sharing life, sharing experiences, sharing oneself with another. And that is the sublime invitation that John calls us to. The foundation of his book is fellowship. To understand Christianity, he says, is fellowship with God, koinonia with God, Deep, intimate friendship, partnership, and connectivity, and deep, intimate friendship and partnership with each other, and it takes time. For those who are newer to the community, and you may not stay, but to those who will stay, be patient. Real, deep, authentic friendships take years. We value each other. We love each other. We overcome each other's idiosyncrasies. Remember that great proverb, better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. 
And true substantive community is when we do life together and we share who we are, warts and all, with each other. That we understand the foundation of this book. I think if we get that wrong, I don't know if the rest of the book make any sense whatsoever. But when I understand God puts me, the fir tree, with the cypress tree and all the other trees, and he plonks us down in a spiritual wasteland, such as Costa Mesa, Southern California. And he nurtures that ecosystem and he watches me bloom. And I can only bloom with the other trees around me who are sublimely different to me. Meryl and I had a very tender time in South Africa. But when we were there a week or so ago, we got word that a very dear friend of ours was dying. Um, what I never remember. Geoblastoma. It's a brain condition. He was the photographer at our wedding. We used to preach the, the gospel on the streets together in Durban um, in, the, in the 70s. And I hadn't seen Patrick for a while, so when we were there, we decided to go and visit him. Now, he and his wife moved to the Midlands. It's difficult to kind of give a comparison, but let me try. Um, think of Fallbrook, maybe. The Midlands is beautiful. There's the hills called the Drakensberg. There's the coastal stretch. And then kind of Midlands, in between all of that, are these rolling hills, little farms, little cute uh, art stores and restaurants. And it's tucked away. And they made a decision, him and his wife, to leave community and to leave town and to go and live in a small holding. Well, well, that worked until it didn't work anymore. It was good until it wasn't good anymore. And suddenly he developed this condition and he is about three or four years older than me. And I sat with him, Terry, Merrill and I sat and wept together as we prayed for him, hoping he recognized us. He seemed to, his eyes seemed to acknowledge our presence. And then we went and took his wife for lunch, Cheryl, very dear friend of ours as well. And it was interesting. The thing she said was this. I wished I'd gone back into community sooner. Because here she is in the Midlands with a property and a house and dogs and all the responsibilities as Patrick passed three days ago, four days ago. And the thing that she wants more than anything else is to be back into community. She said, Chris, this is too painful. It's too difficult. I can't do this alone. That, dear friends, is koinonia. It's a life of sharedness. It's one thing to drive the two hour and a half to get there, which we did. It's another thing to be down the road as friends rally around them and pray for her, pray for him. She now has to take over their finances, payments on the car. All, I mean, we, we sat, it was very tender because he was a photographer. And we sat together over lunch and she brought out all her cameras, his cameras, and said to Terry, which ones do I keep? I, I, I don't know what to do for a job. I, I don't know how to earn my keep. I, and she's Meryl's age. Ladies and gentlemen, this, a gathering, is not koinonia. It's beautiful, and I love it, and the worship, and the tenderness, and the care, and the humor, and the banter, and the celebrating birthdays are all beautiful things, but koinonia is way deeper than that. I reiterate, it's when God takes different trees and creates a new ecosystem as he plants them into a spiritual wasteland. Are you prepared to let that happen? God is light. He says, this is our message. I love it versus kind of Pauline theology or Petrine 
theologies. God is light. It's the collision of two worlds, one of light, one of darkness. Light brings freedom and liberty and abundance. Forgive the kind of nerding out a little bit. The other is darkness, implosion, lost death. T and I were having a burger together yesterday, and we started talking about black holes in space. T, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if I say anything that's wrong. But make me look good, okay? Say, Dad, that's almost right. That's way better than you definitely wrong. But it was fascinating talking about these black holes in space and the fact that the astronomers are trying to decide kind of... Do they exist? And if so, how do they exist? How do we know that that thing is a big black hole? How, how do we know if that is? And, and it's interesting, T explained to me, that one of the ways they know it exists is by bodies that get sucked into the black hole and slowly but surely they disappear and their light disappears. It's like they sucked into the vortex of darkness and all light inside of them goes. Is that close enough to you? Okay. Now, you're supposed to say that's really good, Dad. We'll practice at home for next time, all right? Isn't that an incredible parable? That this big black hole sucks light. These, 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 these objects, these... these um, help me. They're not stars. They, he sucks them in. Come on, T, you must learn, must learn to be quicker. Um, suck these, these things into the big black hole and the light begins to fade. Ladies and gentlemen, that to me, as he, as he was explaining it to me, struck me at the power of the big black hole, which is such a, a, a symbol out there of what the enemy does. It appeals to us. The sense of darkness appeals to us. The only problem is... It sucks light out of us. I was thinking about it. I read a fair amount, as you know. And I've never read a book about male or female who said, you know what, I chose to sleep around and it's the best decision I ever made. 50 years old, I think I've read one. Two, actually. Slept around and said, you know what, at the end of my life, I, I, I'm so glad I did that. Most others live with the shame of a decision to be sucked into the vortex and come out of that vortex broken, identityless. Please show the photograph. Can you, can you do that, AJ? In our church in London, sorry, it's a very moving picture for me. Hold that up there for a while. Sarah, Sarah's, some of you know her, is an English woman with a degree from Oxford or Cambridge? Cambridge? Which one is it, Maddie? Cambridge. In music. And so she came across, as being a member of that congregation, she came across an overwhelming number of women who were either recently incarcerated, recently homeless, recently addicts, or recently had experienced uh, abuse, sexual abuse, or spousal abuse. And she thought, well, what have I got? What can I do into this context? And so she came across an idea because of the skills she had was to create choirs. So she created her first choir and women from all stations in life, some rich, some poor, all different ethnic backgrounds started singing together. 
So it wasn't overtly Christian. They chose different songs and they sang these songs and got more and more invites to sing in more and more events and more and more women came and they started more and more choirs and all these choirs sang in different ways. Now you're thinking, what on earth am I telling you this about? Well, this event called the Pearl Project happened when they decided to take these women and they got a professional, is it a cos... Cosmopolitan, 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 that person. And took these broken women. I've read all their stories. Did their makeup. They got a hairstylist to come and style their hair. And they got a retail store to come and dress these women up. And they had a fashion show with them. And you can only imagine the tears as these women found dignity and light out of the darkness and brokenness. And what struck me is how many of them, the girl on the top on the left was sexually abused by her brother for about 10 years. But light came in. Light came in. That's light. If you see the before pictures of darkness, they don't look like that. And can you hear John's cry? Can you hear the pleading of his heart? God is light. God takes darkness and he replaces it with light. And these women look gorgeous and radiant and full of hope and full of purpose. And many of them have come to faith, not all. But they've tasted light. And when asked, some of them, well, why did you allow your husband to beat you up? Why didn't you leave? And many of them said things like, I didn't know where to go. He threatened to kill the children. And the list goes on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, this sermon, this poetic sermon is about light. And that is his great appeal. Isn't that amazing? Kids don't fear the light, but they certainly fear the dark. I watched some kiddies' cartoons, and I thought I'd try and use one, but they're too long. And they're so dang cute. Mama! They're demons in my room. They're monsters. I close the curtain, and the monsters go. I go to sleep, dearie. Everything's fine. Mama! There was this whoosh, whoosh, whoosh in my room. No, there's no one here. Whoosh, whoosh. And it's the cat in a, in a, uh, a paper packet. You know. Whoosh, whoosh. Isn't it amazing? Kids have no fear of the light. They only fear the dark. So why do we fear the light? Because the light exposes darkness. And it's a light that brings liberty and freedom into the depths of our soul if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness and we lie and do not practice the truth i'm going to land it quickly and i'm sorry i've taken so long with the rest but i wanted it to marinate with you to get that fellowship notion is imperative to understanding this book i love this as an old man he doesn't have the energy to be all nuanced 
to be cool. I don't want to offend you. He just says it like this. Listen, if, if you walk in darkness, you lie and you do not practice the truth. Next. Don't you love the bold courage? If you walk, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all our sin. Do you see the plural? We, we, we. Not I, I, I. Koinonia makes it a we gospel. When we hurt, when we sin, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. Do you see those women? Very moving. Very, very powerful. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is such a big word. But can I throw out a few ideas attached to sin? Well, I want to be my own God. I want to define my own morality. I want to determine what's right and wrong. I want to be the measure of all things. No one can tell me who to sleep with and who not to sleep with. No one can tell me what is a lie, what's not a lie, what's, an, what's orthodox, what is not. No one can tell me what to do. It's just the absence of trust. I don't know if I can trust you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you deaden your pain and trauma from your disobedience? How do I deaden the pain and trauma from my disobedience? Is it maybe shopping? I wash my guilt away with plastic. Is it comfort eating? And so I go and I partake eating, eating, eating because my soul is crying under the weight of my own sin, but I excuse it away because I don't sin. I don't have a definition from sin, so I just eat. Is it busyness? Rushing from one. I'm always so busy. I'm always so busy. Or are you hiding sin? Or through friendships, being around people that we like, or sexual exploits, or drugs, or alcohol, or parties. Isn't this a most beautiful passage? Psalm 139, 6 through 8. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a remarkable sermon from a father who's right at the end of the end. He's in the twilight years of his twilight years. He hasn't got the time, effort, or energy to waste. And he shoots straight from the hip, but a message of great hope. If we confess our sins, we tell others, he is faithful and just. Why do we do this? And Maddie, thank you, and team, love the way the table looks tonight he is faithful and just to do what two things to forgive us our sins remember the picture can you throw that up again troy the picture of those ladies it's not just the sins we've committed expiation that great beautiful word says it's the sins that others have committed against me too i can be free from that. I was preaching in South Africa. A woman walked up to me afterwards and she said, Chris, I'm landing. 
How old was she love in her 60s or 70s? She says, I've got a story to tell you. I'd spoken on confession. She said, when I was nine, my grandpa started abusing me. By the time I was 13, he had full sex with me. By the time I was 19, my grandpa seated a child in me. And then she described the years, not only of a broken marriage, which is obvious, of trauma and travail, losing any sense of identity, darkness, the vortex that sucks us in and takes our life, this little girl whose life was taken from her by her grandpa. She told me with great tenderness, the second husband, before he married her, he said, I, she said, I have to tell you the story. This is what happened to me. The kid was put up for adoption. And he put his arms around her. And he said, I will marry you. And I will love you. And I will care for you. And this will never happen again. They walk with Jesus. She's free. I looked deeply into her eyes to see if there was any residue of darkness, anger, or bitterness. And there wasn't. See, Chris, I forgave my grandpa. I wanted to say, how could you? Is it possible? But see, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The unrighteousness I perpetrate and the unrighteousness that others do to me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our hope.